0: and gentlemen, welcome back to The Business Brew. This episode's super special to me because it highlights a -a one-of-a-kind individual, Wall Street legend, Jim O'Shaughnessy. He's got a lot to say about life, the way the brain works, markets, and everything in between. I've been really fortunate to get to know Jim over the past six months, and my life is way better because of it. On a professional note, I am thrilled to introduce my first sponsor, Koifin. Koifin is an awesome product that displays financial information simply and elegantly. It was founded by Rob Koifman. Rob is an ex-hedge fund guy who really values the display of financial information in an elegant and concise manner. I think he's built an amazing product. And It's not just me that thinks it, because Coifin is one of the fastest growing platforms for financial data and analytics to research stocks and understand market trends. I discovered them thanks to many of my friends, many of which are on Fintwit, Elliot and Shomek two past guests of the show, highly recommended that I talk to Rob, and I'm really grateful that I did. Um, the best way to describe the product would be a Bloomberg Lite. With tons of high quality fundamental data, a powerful graph engine that can show it all clearly, and a user interface that doesn't look like it was built in the 90s. If you're an individual investor, research analyst, portfolio manager, or financial advisor, do yourself a favor and check them out. You're not going to regret it. Sign up for free at koyfin.com. That's K-O-Y-F-I-N.com. Yeah, they sponsored me. No, I'm not hocking a product I don't believe in. Rob's legit. Coifin's legit. Sign up. Figure it out for yourself. So, without further ado, please enjoy the episode with Jim. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. So with that out of the way, Jim, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? I'm well, man. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time.
1: As have I, as have I. And I just had you on infinite loops with another good friend of mine, Adam. Indeed. And that was a lot of fun, so...
0: I'm still not sure why I belong in that room, but I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> wow. You belong. You belong.
0: Well, thank you very much. I think, uh, I don't know, Adam. Adam's a unique thinker. I was just happy to be a, a part of it.
1: It was fun. It was a lot of fun.
0: Indeed. So part of why I wanted to have you as an opener is, first and foremost, I want to thank you for some of the things that you helped me through last year. As I kind of was experiencing a little bit of success, I didn't really know how to handle it, and I turned to you, and I really appreciate the advice that you gave me. And on top of that, I thought that what you did airing the conversation that we had about Robin Hood, especially given who your friends are, I thought was very, very courageous. So I want to thank you. And my family has settled with them. So my sort of fight with them is over as far as I'm concerned. And I think that the podcast that we did was a non-inconsequential step towards a outcome that certainly isn't good, but is more palatable than could have been the alternative. So thank you for that
1: it was my pleasure bill and working your way through those things is hard you know it's just uh, there's a great quote which is whoever angers you controls you Hmm. and you know i try to i try to think about that a lot when like if i'm miffed or whatever i sort of think well okay why am i reacting this way and if it's legitimate like it certainly was in your case then I go, okay, so let's take some action steps to correct this. You and your family did that, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're moving on.
0: Yeah, and I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, hopefully they're in the process of moving on, whatever that looks like for them, right? Who knows, but.
1: Right, right. It
0: could have been a lot worse, and I guess the only thing that, if somebody hasn't heard me say it, that I would add to what I have said about Robin Hood in the past is, they really could have made the lawsuit hellish for all parties involved. And I think that there was a rational outcome that made sense. wish the circumstances were different, but I I will give them props for doing the right thing at the right time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting on the razor's edge here, right? Because I support younger people learning about investing and, and investing and doing those things. I think it's really great. And if you start young, it's even more powerful. But I also get angry. I helped an older friend who'd never invested open an account, not at Robinhood. And I got pretty angry because I won't name the broker, it's an online broker, but I had to, three times, I had to say, I do not want a margin account. Yeah, And it's just some subtle changes, right? could earn you really good props. So on the one hand, yes, very, very excited, worried a little bit about, you know, seeing the same thing happen again and again and again. People like paying attention to the narrative and investing in things they don't know about. But on the other hand, I want young people to invest. I want them to learn about it. When I was young, I started investing when I was, I guess, 20 20 years old, and i was an options trader and i thought i was king shit because i had done a mathematical thing using black scholes implied volatility that worked pretty well it, it hit you know singles and doubles but working working and i was like you know cock of the walk <laughs> and then i got obliterated and i learned a ton from getting obliterated so i mean i'm i'm not wishing that on anyone obviously but if for people listening especially younger people listening if something bad does happen learn from that and then you know get on a course of study i know bill you chapter and verse you you've done all your studies which is i think the right way to do this but well
0: i too started out losing money on options so it was an expensive education which is perhaps why i'm more passionate about it than maybe I should be because, you know, I guess the, the charitable response to sort of like my mind goes to the negative place. Right. But Mm -hmm. if I wanted to argue the other side of it, I'd say, well, if I didn't get into options trading, then there's a reasonable chance I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to see how the path unfolds it's, it's like that.
1: It's like that great uh, Cormac McCarthy. Oh, by the way, didn't you love the guy who fooled Twitter that he was Cormac McCarthy? <laughs> I just thought that was the best thing in the world. What a performance artist. But the real Cormac McCarthy has a great quote, which is, you'll never know what worse luck your bad luck has saved you from. <laughs>
2: huh. yeah. so,
1: so, and I also think this is kind of an interesting learning exercise because- so many people like look at failure and they're afraid. They don't want to look bad in, in front of their peers or their spouse or or whatever. And, and if you can reframe failure, I failed a lot of times on a bunch of stuff. And, and you can reframe it to, hey, what can I learn from this? Then rather than like getting all nervous about it, et cetera, it gives you the impetus to say, you know what? Let's do it. Let's try it and see. And when you're able to remove that fear, it's really difficult to put it into words, but it's really powerful.
0: Yeah. I guess that, so I have two thoughts going on. One of them is, I think that people are hardened from their failures, which is one reason that I like when people will come on and talk about their failures on the show, because I think it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, these people look at where they're at and they never had any problems and I have failure and, you know, I can't be that, right? It's like, well, you don't know the backstory of that person. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of nice to have people be honest. And then the other thing that that I have going on in my head, and I don't know which way you want to fork the conversation, but I didn't think that we'd get to a point where the options market appear to be driving the underlying. Hmm. And that's so, kind of something that scares me a little.
1: Yeah. What did Greenspan call them? Or actually it was Warren Buffett maybe. Yeah, weapons uh, of mass de- destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. And you know, I saw that over my career. These kinds of things happen very kind of cyclically, and I've seen it many, many times. And what happens is an event <laughs> and and the event is an unhappy one. And people come back to their senses and start looking at the the underlying again i don't know i mean there's a lot of really good thesis out there i know mike green's got one about the rise of passive investing and and target date funds and what's that doing i don't completely agree with him but i think that it's a very interesting thesis but i always kind of like we'll see right because yeah. uh, it, you know unsustainable trends tend not to sustain themselves said i think herbert stein and Things that you think are going to go on forever stop. And, you know, I've been lucky enough over the course of my career to experience that personally many, many, many times. And so I always just try to keep a dispassionate view towards what I do. And, you know, look, the entire way that we look at investing is all directional probabilities. And when we buy a a basket of stocks because of the underlying factors that they have, we do that knowing full well that X percent of them are gonna fail. And I was saying that to a friend of mine who's a more traditional investor, and he's like, I would never buy a stock that I thought had a chance of failing. And I'm like, well, that's one of the guidelines that we use. We, We know the failure rate. We are able to look through analysis at drawdowns, and some of them are terrifying. And the problem with it is that I've experienced many, many times, especially when I've ever engaged with the end investor rather than an advisor or whatnot. I cannot tell you the number of times, like when I started my first company, O'Shaughnessy Capital, we used to literally, people would come in because we took high net worth money directly back in those days and i'd sit them down in the office and they all came in wanting the strategy from what works on wall street that was the best performer. Hmm. And most of these people were 60 plus and and so i'd sit them in the conference room and i'd say okay cool but i want to show you the 10 worst drawdowns for that strategy. And like some of them were 55%. Yeah. And this is pretty great financial crisis and they would look at it and Eight out of ten of them are like, "Yeah, no, I don't think I want that strategy. <laughs> I was looking so,
0: for the return without the risk, sir. Yes, that's what I want. Can you
1: can you give me that? If I could give you that, I wouldn't be meeting with you. Because also, I'd have can my we own lower country. your fees while we're at it? Thank you very yeah, much. Exactly, exactly. Of course, of course.
0: It, uh, the game doesn't change, or the clients don't. At least the game may. So when you started, you, you said you were an options trader. If I recall correctly, you were hitting singles and doubles, and then you stumbled upon an academic paper that exposed your strategy. Is that fair?
1: I did indeed. It's very fair. So I've always been a research junkie. And back when it was hard, literally, you had to get in your car, go down to the research library. In my case, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. So the library was the James J. Hill, who was a railroad robber baron and uh, took after Mr. Carnegie in giving libraries and literally like, go through microfiche. I don't even know if you know what that is.
0: I do. I was trained on that in grade school.
1: Okay. Well, there you go. I haven't used it
0: in a while, though. I'll admit
1: to that. Right, right. Well, neither (laughs) have I. Neither have I. So I was early into the metaverse. I like adopting technology very, very early. But so it stopped working, literally. And I'm like, okay, something's going on here. So I went down there, and, and lucky for me, they had a collection of all the you know uh, journal of portfolio management, et cetera, et cetera, all of the really geeky stuff on mostly academic, a lot of practitioners too. And I went through it, I went through it, and went through it, and found it. And it was an academic. I can't even remember. I think he was at University of Illinois, although I might have to be corrected on that. Anyway, I had kind of a instant aha, which was. Mathematical anomalies, once identified and disclosed, go away. So, you know, like the old anomaly where you could trade Royal Dutch, which traded in New York and traded in London, and you could ARB the difference in price because there were no computers, right? The minute that that technology was there, it went away for the most part. And, and that kind of led me on my path of, well, what... Can't get armed away. And, you know, as I often say, you know, markets change second by second. Human nature hasn't changed millennia by millennia. Arbitraging human nature is the final edge. And the thing about human nature that's really interesting to me is the first paper I wrote, I wrote in 1987, and essentially it was all about behavioral finance. It wasn't called behavioral finance back then, they just called it psychology. But we've had this data for sixty years on a variety of things, not just the market, in human decision making. We suck. And for the most part, we get caught in bad heuristics and and rules of thumb that sound right, but they really aren't right. Hmm. And we have a very hard time correcting the error. And so, like, I'm a huge fan of Danny Kenneman of Andy Duke, of all of the people who are really working hard to get people to understand this. But the fact is, we get it intellectually, but that isn't the part of our brain that takes over when we're panicking, right? Yeah. It's like when we're panicking and you do this, that isn't really you. It's not the front. It's not this part. It's the ancient part of your brain that basically is danger running away. And... That is, unless you have a process in place that mitigates that, willpower is not enough. It's just, it's not. And, you know, kind of leading me into the thing that really cemented it for me was something I've written about was going into the crash of 1987. I had amassed the largest put position on the OEX, which, you know, was uh, a proxy for the S&P. I had never had that big of a position, really. Um, and I was like, long
0: or short. You were. This was your biggest directional bet to date. Wow.
1: Well, no, no. Okay, I've I've, I've made bigger directional bets. Okay, but this was my first one. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. So I'm 27 years old. I meant and, up know, to I, that
0: point. This is like, to, like your oh, first oh, yeah, real I'm, big up call. Up to that,
1: definitely, definitely. Huh. And I had developed another uh, s- sort of mathematically based. Uh, system in a similar manner to the one that got outed by the academic anyway, it was suggesting things are really, really pricey here. Hmm. And so I just methodically put together this put position. And when I started, which was kind of like in August, the premiums weren't really crazy. But as I continued to add to the position, I actually took it as good news that the premiums were just like going up, 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 Hmm. up for the puts. Long story short, the day before the crash of the market was a horrible day. It was down like 100 points, which was 7% or 8% or whatever. And that was back when I still listened to narrative. And so I had on, I guess it was FNN, which got taken over by CNBC. And like everybody they had on, everybody was like, that's it. This has cleared out all of the weekends. You gotta gotta get in there and buy. Now this is right this is like a half an hour before the close. So I called the broker. I'm like, what are you thinking here? And he's like, dude, get out of this position. (laughs) And like I panicked. Huh. And I got I made an emotional decision and I sold the entire Position at oh, a really small game didn't lose, sucks, but a Jim. really small game oh. that would have been worth. I it, I used to keep the calculation just to remind oh, that's me that
0: brutal man
1: that hubris has a extracts a big price. But but again, looking at failure, it cemented in me the fact that. I wasn't any different than any other person operating human OS, hmm. right? When I got clear of that and understood, hey, you know, I'm just as much of a cosmic schmuck here as anyone else is, I got to figure out a process that allows me to derail these emotional uh, decisions. Hmm. And I look at that trade, even though it was like, and this speaks directly to what we were talking about earlier, right? A lot of people would look at that and just you know, just be angry and, oh my God, I can't believe I, I did that. I'm such an idiot, blah, blah, blah. I looked at it as the best thing that ever happened to me.
2: Yeah. Well, be- it was a great
0: lesson, right?
1: Well, great lesson, but it also set me on the path of, I'm just going to be a pure quant. Yeah. And listen, by the way, that's my path. It doesn't have to be your path. It doesn't have to be anyone's path. What I advocate for people is find the thing that works right for you, right? I have a friend in Vienna and he's not a quant, but what he does is almost as good. He's a trader, and and we're not traders, as you know, we're investors. But what he does is when a position is going against him, he literally has programmed himself to get up out of his chair, Hmm. go to his locker, put his running gear on. Run a couple of miles and come back. Hmm. And what he found that that by and large works really, really well for him. So hmm. I'm not here to proselytize on a, a method that's worked well for me. I mean, sure, read about it, take some examples from it, learn, but you've got to find something that you know that you can stick with, right? And so everybody's different and there's lots of paths towards success, but If you think that you're going to be able to do it through your clever insights and your ability and willpower to overcome your emotions, the probabilities are very, very high. I'm sure there's some person out there who can do that. Yeah. Like maybe Buffett,
0: not even him.
1: Yeah. Again, learn to think in terms of probabilities. The probabilities are very bad for you there. And that is not a bet you want to make. Like I always say to people, if you're in Vegas. Own the casino. Don't be the guy walking in the front door.
0: Yeah, You know who I wonder? I wonder if Jesse Livermore, when he was at the top of his game, was pretty good with emotions. I would imagine. But then again, if I remember the story correctly, they took him down in the end. So,
1: So he's a fascinating character. And I honestly don't think that he was as in control of his emotions as many people feel. I think that he got really full of himself after calling correctly the crash of 29 and walked around with bodyguards because people, you know, they blamed him and they wanted to hmm. kill him. <laughs> but then if you look at his career, he also had a history of depression, which yeah. is, can be tough. He lost it all, made it all, lost it all. And after the lost it all, killed himself in the men's room of the Sherry Netherland Hotel in Manhattan.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I love the book Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. One of the best. Well, absolutely. It's like whenever anyone asks me, I say, read that one first because yeah. re- the thing that's great about it is it also reminds you, what I often tell people is read the book and, and then just fill in names of today. Yeah. And you're going to feel like you're on Twitter reading somebody's tweet about, you know, <laughs> GME. And, and because we don't change, man, yeah. we, we just don't change.
0: Yeah. The thing that sucks about your put position is you were right. If I can speak for you, it sounds like when you saw the vol go up, you knew that the option or had a strong premonition. You asserted, I should say, in the spirit of our old of our previous conversation, yeah, that the volatility going up maybe knew something that the equity didn't know. I right? did. Because you said it like it was a positive indicator to you, right? Oh, so absolutely. So you're paying more for premium and you're excited about it because you think you're gonna be right. And then to cut that bet short
1: sucks. Well, I again, it. yeah, I, I take a very different view of that. I like to look at math because it doesn't have an agenda for the most part, and you know while going up, the market's telling me something that I don't know. The market is always smarter than you are. Anyone who thinks they're smarter than the market is going to end poorly, I think yeah, but the lesson that I learned about the power of motion to screw up our even the best laid plans, right there's a great quote from Proust that I put up periodically on Twitter, which is, this is paraphrasing it, guided by feelings that are destined not to last, we make our irrevocable choices. Hmm. And that speaks to me because, you know, how many times in the heat of the moment have you made a decision that like six weeks later, when you're looking back on it, you're like, how could I have been so dumb? Well you could have been so dumb because your body got filled up with cortisol and your emotions and your amygdala were like yeah, I'm running the show now I'm the captain now yeah. uh and time and, to fight or and, flight and, yeah and and what happens is 6 weeks later that's all gone yeah. and so you're you're able to see clearly what happened but in kind of the, my first book I said Successful investors unstick themselves from time. Hmm. The past, the present, and the future make up their now. And Hmm. what I mean by that is we overweight, we give way more weight to whatever we read today or saw today or whatever. And then we straight line it into the future, Mm -hmm. right? You're much better off making it a continuous wave, right? And looking at that and thinking, okay, well, we'll see. It engenders a level of humility about your own prowess that isn't present if you're like thinking in the only here and now. Another thing that I I just passionately believe in is people are, are way too quick to become prematurely certain about things. And you know, you mentioned our work together. I mean, that's one of the parts of what I do is when I'm trying to work with somebody is like, that's wrong. And what you want to do is you want to try to remain as open to what might happen and the probability distribution of that, right? And be a little more like Spock and a little less like Captain Kirk. And that's hard. You literally have to train yourself a lot to think this way because it's not a natural way of thinking and you know it's it's like i was talking to somebody yesterday and we were talking about how is it that these gurus man they still get the gig they still get put on you know financial media they still get paid for their speeches and they're all about certainty and only the madman is certain in my opinion and so again it's a a feature, not a bug of human OS. We crave certainty so much that even if, like, we were going to go see some guru, right? And right before we walked into the auditorium, we got handed a list that showed his or her last 40 calls, and 38 of them were wrong. We're still going to go in and listen to him. And you know what? He's going to be so certain in his attitude or she. That you're going to believe them. There's a lot of good stories about this, but it springs from our very human desire for the illusion of control. A lot of things that happen are random, and that does not sync well with the way human brains work. So we construct narratives, usually after the fact, that make sense to us. So my buddy, Rory Sutherland is really great on this. You know, it's like the brain is not the command center or the Oval Office. It's the press office, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's there to make you sound like you really thought this out. The fact is, you didn't. You made the decision emotionally, and then you paper it over. Some people don't even paper it over. You paper it over with, you know, what a plausible sounding, rational reason for what you've done. So if you want to get really good at this, you really have to do a deep dive on behavioral psychology on genetic behaviorism I'm there right now so that stuff is really scary you know there's a, a study done by some academics where they looked at identical twins and it's it's pinned on my twitter page and what they found was that cuz identical twins are clones right yeah it should be um, the same yeah in theory so, right yeah what they found was that as much as forty-five percent of investment behavior? You know, mm, buying and selling, I did and read et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I did yeah, read this. Uh, is genetic, and here's the here's the part that's scary, is genetic and cannot be educated against. Yeah. So we're complicated creatures. I was on a really fascinating call yesterday with a physicist expounding on some things that I think is really cool. Uh, but I, I asked him a question about consciousness. What is this like, thing
0: you think is cool?
1: Oh, well, so w- why causes precede effects was mm-hmm. the title of his talk. Okay. And the Santa Fe Institute, and these people are wicked smart. The question I asked was, so how does consciousness come into everything that we're doing here? And then we kind of got into this conversation about, we still have no idea, really. There is no like well-formed thesis or hypothesis about why we're conscious, about hmm. how that gets enabled. It's like when you start looking into this stuff, you're like, "Hmm, I think maybe more people should have known should know about that. Hmm. It's like a- anesthesia. Oh, how does anesthesia work?" We don't know.
0: Can I ask you a follow up on this study? Just because now you got my brain going. Sure. I think it's my conscious mind that's coming up with this. Did they comment in the study of the twins, you know, when they said that it can't be unlearned, do you think that it can be unlearned if you can train your subconscious mind to change the way that it thinks through the power of habit or however you talk to yourself or, you know, I mean, like some really different way of change, right? Not like a, you know, like at the base level.
1: Yeah. You and I have chatted about that at length because of Arnold and what a, that was like, I think one of your best podcasts, by the way. He's uh, a man.
2: That,
0: that was, that was, I had nothing to do with it, Jim. I just got out of the way, <laughs> like I'm going to do here.
1: He's awesome. And for those who haven't heard it, I highly recommend listening to it. He overcame like incredible things in his life to be a great success and one of the tools that he used was self-hypnotism and exploration of the power of the unconscious subconscious, I mean, whatever name you want to put on it, yeah, mind. And by the way, if people who are listening are interested, go to YouTube and type in Milton Erickson, who is probably the godfather of this. This guy's accomplishments were crazy good. He could like literally, in two sessions cure somebody who hadn't been able to leave their house for 5 years because hmm. they were agoraphobic. So, that's an interesting segue, Bill, because maybe maybe I hadn't thought about it. The way I thought about it was, well, maybe it could be changed if you put these guardrails, these process around it. Yeah. But uh, that would be worth exploring for sure because it's kind of like this idea of metaprogramming and you can do it. It's really hard. Metaprogramming is essentially programming your own mind. And is that like neuro
0: linguistic type stuff or different? That's,
1: yeah. The neuro linguistic stuff is part of it. Yeah. That's Bandler and Grinder. And I read that stuff when I was like 20 and kind of forgot. And then a friend in Florida was like, who's an old school psychologist, but he's been an advisor for years and years. He called me on the phone. He's like, you do realize that you are using NLP techniques all the Hmm. time. And I'm like, what? No, I'm not. He goes, Jim. And so he emailed me this thing and he had underlined pacing and leading is like one of their big things. So pacing and leading is really easy. I would just say to you, Bill, are you doing a podcast with me right now? Yes, I am. And are you looking over to see what your kids are getting into?
0: Yes, I am. Unfortunately.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And then so that's the pacing part where I'm getting you to say, yes, yes, yes.
0: Uh, and then
1: I lead you where I want you to go.
0: Sure you do. That's smart.
1: And then you are going to go, yeah, yeah. That that's right. Sense. You
0: are leading me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all of that stuff is very instructive, I think, because it helps you understand that. I'll be honest. Their early books are pretty technical. And it's all about the structure of language, right? Hmm. And I find it very interesting, and I learned a lot from it. But the bottom line is, yes, there are techniques that you can use. The one that you and I worked on together was the thread that I wrote called The Thinker and the Prover. And I'm a huge believer in, listen, you know why propaganda works? It works because they just repeat the same message time and time and time and time again. And here's the interesting part about that. They do it in such a manner that your conscious mind ignores it. If hmm. In fact, it gets irritated by it hmm. and ignores it. Guess what doesn't ignore it?
2: Hmm. Your
1: subconscious mind. If you study the subconscious mind, and I'm sure most of this we'll find out is wrong, but at least it's effective, right? George Box, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And so why it works is because... The subconscious, at least on the theories that are working today, is quite literal, and it also does not have a sense of time. Hmm So if you believe something deeply about yourself, that's what's going to happen. Because your subconscious mind it, and you know, by the way, it doesn't even have to be you to believe it. There are some studies that have replicated where they lied to a group of teachers. Telling them that you know these twelve kids that were picked totally at random, by the way, these twelve kids all are gifted.
0: Oh, I think I read this study.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they went away and they came back a year later. And guess who was getting the best scores in the class? Yeah, the kids that they randomly, randomly chosen kids. So it's one of the, the reasons that I believe very strongly in the power of words. Because they become symbols, symbols dominate, and if they get lodged into your unconscious or your subconscious mind, uh, you know, I worked with a guy once where literally his thing was he deeply believed that he did not have the right, and and he used that word, the right to make more than $80,000 a year.
0: Huh, what a limiting belief.
1: And guess what? (laughs) <laughs> he never made more than $80,000 a year, despite the fact that he was maybe one of the most talented guys I'd ever met. And and I'm talking this Where'd guy- Where did that come
0: from? I mean, if you're at liberty well, to say, I mean, it sounds like it's got to be something that happened in his childhood or something. I don't know. Well, most,
1: mo- most of it is in yeah. your childhood.
0: I've been to men's groups, Jim. Have you ever been to a men's group?
1: Actually, when I was in YPO, young president's organization, they had things called forums, which I thought were the most useful part of the. Oh, entire yeah, I did membership. tell you
0: this. Yeah. When I got all riled yeah. up and I screamed at somebody, I thought it was my parents. It was actually a good, good experience at the end, but it was wild to be in.
1: Yeah, it is. But you know, talk therapy has proven to be one of the most efficacious of all the therapies. And here's the rub. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah. It could be a psychologist. It could be a psychiatrist. It could be a bartender. It could be your buddy. It can be anyone. And we found that the ability to express it, right? I'm a big fan of a guy who just died recently, unfortunately, named Dr. John Sarno, who is a traditional MD practiced at NYU in rehabilitation. And he got so angry that the traditional ways that they were trying to treat things like back pain just didn't work. Hmm. And so he did this deep dive and found that there was a strong mind-body connection and that a lot of these pains were being caused by people repressing their emotions, mostly Uncomfortable emotions that mm. they for whatever reason believed should not be expressed. So you're talking about rage. And it
0: manifested itself in the body.
1: Yes. That's wild. And, and there's makes another sense, great
0: that's wild.
1: There's another great book called The Body Keeps the Score. Anyway, his success rate was crazy good. But one of one of his qualifications was he would not treat you if you did not say that you were open to the possibility that this was correct. Hmm. And again, now we're getting back to- Oh, that kind lim- of forces you belief. to say
0: yes. And then it like it's the little carrot that you're chasing in your mind. Like At some point in your mind is already acknowledged, this could be my problem.
1: Exactly. And so I had in my late 30s, I just launched several mutual funds. It's getting a lot of press for what works on Wall Street. I was on CNBC all the time. Mostly because Mark Haynes and I were buddies and he really liked me. And back in those days, he really ran the show. Huh. I actually want to touch on that later. Yeah. But anyway, I got this thing with my neck and my neck was frozen. Literally, I, I could not move more than there. Oh, that's brutal. With, without excruciating pain. And so I did what every normal person does I went to my doctor he's like okay well i'm going to prescribe you know these analgesics and blah 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 and we'll see how it goes and you know hot cold you know the drill yeah and then nothing happened and so then i went to a chiropractor who put me in traction and then i went i'll dispense with all of the things i went down and so me being me i'm like okay i got there's got to be some other way so i went to the bookstore went and found this sarno book called Mind Over Back Pain. I would recommend the current book that I recommend is The Mind-Body Connection. Anyway, so I read the book. You know what I did after I read the book the first time? I threw it across the room my wife was walking in. She goes, what's going on? I, was, I just this read the bullshit. biggest pile of bullshit in my life. This guy is a con man. This is bullshit. Uh, doesn't I he know my believe, neck hurts? I can't believe that I spent time reading this fucking book. And so my wife goes and picks it up and she's kind of paging through it. And she goes, I kind of see some aspects of your personality here and i'm like i get getting angrier and your neck's getting tighter get, and you're talking about tighter. what bullshit exactly. it is exactly <laughs> so so i reread it i think ultimately five times huh and guess guess what happened your neck one neck started morning i heal itself. one uh, it didn't just start one morning i woke up and it was gone huh gone there's a great movie that I contributed a little bit to help finance the making of it called all the rage and I think you get it on YouTube or I, it's available broadly um, and when you watch this man Howard Stern is a huge fan of Sarno Sarno cured Stern's back problems hmm. and anyway when you watch this movie though there's one person in particular that just blows me away she like, in the beginning of it, she's on one of those little scooters because she can't walk. She literally cannot walk because she is in such horrible pain that she's got to, you know, like ride around on the scooter.
2: Hmm. And
1: then, you know, it follows her with Dr. Sarno through the movie. And and the final shot is her jogging in Central Park. Wow. Good and for her. And it's just like, exactly. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff that if you're open to it is can be really useful in repurposing i guess if you will to make your investment uh, strategy work a bit better and so i i would definitely say i bet there would be something with the subconscious my problem I think is barriers
0: are probably safer to be fair i'm not sure that people should be like i'm going to reprogram my subconscious mind actually the last time <laughs> we talked you know what i did almost immediately after I wrote my two buddies Francisco and Alex and I was like if I ever put through any trade and I don't write you guys some memo before I do it I'm sending you $250 each right just like as a forcing function good because that- I I was thinking about some of the stuff that we had said and I was like I got to I need to write more and I need to have more accountability around me so that I'm not making behavioral mistakes
1: so you, yeah, I mean, the writing is something that I have been, that's one of my soapboxes. Writing is so powerful on so many levels, right? So th- the first thing about writing is you instantly understand if you understand something or not. Yeah. When you try to write about it and you look at what you've written and it doesn't make any sense, you realize I, have no <laughs> I don't know what I'm clue. talking about. <laughs> I have no clue what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Which drives you to further study. But the other thing that I really think is really helpful for writing is that it listen again back to human operating system. Our memories are unreliable narrators. And what happens is there's this kind of automatic function where our memory upgrades upgrades. <laughs> What we think we have as a memory to be consistent with what we believe now, yeah. And there's nothing like being called a liar in your own handwriting. My experience that is easy to give as an example. So I was out uh, pre-COVID to dinner with friends, and I don't know how it came up, but the the first Gulf War, you know, where Kuwait was occupied by Saddam, and George Bush Sr. mounted the campaign to get him out of there. And they were like, so did you support that war? And I'm like, absolutely, I did. You know, that was just, that was like flag on the play, man. You can't do that. Hmm. And the United, at this point, the United States is the only real superpower left. And, you know, we have to do something about it. And, and so that was, it wasn't a long conversation. But anyway, it happened that I was doing some research into something that was around the same time. And I found an entry on the eve of our invasion of Kuwait and guess what you i was not horribly it. opposed to it yeah and i actually wrote for every innocent person we kill we're going to create 10 jihadis and pretty like, prescient but <laughs> also totally wrong
2: <laughs> yeah well
1: believing that i but it's a good illustration i think of we're not aware that this happens to us Right? We would swear, by the way, this is why eyewitness accounts should be basically just not allowed. Yeah. Because they're wrong. And there's a lot of studies that have replicated. And you notice I always say have replicated and haven't replicated. That's really important. (laughs) Like, so what works on Wall Street? I tried to do it as scientific an approach as possible. And by that, I mean, what I wanted was to disclose the way that I programmed it to come up with the results because my goal was that if somebody else got that same data set and ran the test the same way they should get exactly the same results that I got right yeah that means that they that they could replicate it and that you could take it seriously there's a crisis going on unfortunately now in actual science it's like i'm still Trying to ponder how you manage to politicize a drug or a mask—it's insanity to me. Um, yeah,
0: these are bizarre times, especially really, with all this information.
1: Well, exactly. It's almost so, the
0: problem—is so much information, right?
1: So Claude Shannon, one of my heroes, who I think should be known as well as Albert Einstein, came up with information theory, and you know everything we're doing, everything is because of Shannon. And one of the things that he did, and this is what's so cool about these old school guys, I had the opportunity when I was still living in the Twin Cities to meet Seymour Cray. Do you know that name? No. So he created the first supercomputer. Oh, Cray, C R Y, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, okay, you know how he did it?
0: I have All no idea.
1: Handwritten on legal pages. Really? Yeah. And I got to see him. It was so cool. So cool. Anyway, one of the things that you find is when the information gets to a point, there's a technical term called the Shannon limit. And that limit is how much the human brain can actually take in before it starts going a little crazy. (laughs) And many people are at their Shannon limit. And, and so it's like, you know, I've been writing and talking a lot about the thing I'm calling the Great Reshuffle. I think that we'll be able to figure this out and get around it. But I think that we need to also understand that information, calling anything information age, uh, that's, that's done. That's gone. We've got plenty of information and we'll continue to get more and it'll get better, right? But now the game is, how do you synthesize that? how do you turn it into actionable knowledge, right? Yeah, That's the way that you have to start thinking right now. You have to be really open-minded. And this idea of being open to looking at things in a nonlinear way, as opposed to a linear way. I mean, there's a lot going on. And I think for those that can use these new tools and these new ways of looking at things, the world is going to be an amazingly exciting place over the next 10 to 20 years, but there are also people who are going to suffer. And so with this information deluge, tsunami, for example, it's why you see all these conspiracy theories, right? When, when people get overwhelmed with information and they're not good at curating what they're looking at, they reach a point where they just want it to stop. And so hmm, they seek yeah. simplicity, but not simplicity in the form that I would find it a virtue, right? But simplicity, easy solutions, right? Well, of course, it was group X, Y, or Z, right? Yeah. And then we scapegoat them, and then you get these tribes warring with each other, and that descends into dogmatism and conspiracy theories because it's easier, it's just easier to believe that, you know, whatever. And you, there's so many these days. That ultimately isn't great. I do have a theory, though, that, you know, the ability to vent on social media might not be 100% bad because, again, back to talk therapy, right? So let's say you're really angry and I'm enraged. If you can get on Twitter or facebook or whatever you want to do and i hate (laughs) so-and-so that's a steam valve in the older days prior to being able to do that you might have done something a lot worse you might have like actually physically assaulted somebody and i know we have that going on too but yeah but i understand
0: what you're saying it's an outlet for people's minds and i think if as the receiving end, because I, I mean, I do this sometimes on investment ideas, and some of the ones that I like to talk about are the more polarizing ones because it's more fun. I think sure. that if somebody jumps into the conversation and I kind of say, like, okay, I acknowledge that you have a point, right? And just kind of de escalate, like right off the bat, it more often than not, a lot of people that seem angry up front really are not. And then it's like, okay, now let's have a conversation.
1: Yeah. I think that I do the same. I have been blessed with being totally chill in terms of people, you want to scream at me, scream at me. It's not going to affect me in any way. But that couldn't uh, have been
0: so when you were building your business. Like, has this always been your personality trait or has this happened in your, I'm not going to call you older age, that feels wrong. (laughs) (laughs) As you've grown up,
1: (laughs) as you've become a fine
0: wine jib.
1: So when I was younger, I was in fact a proselytizer. I was a true believer and I did all sorts of things intentionally to stir up a ruckus. Like at a big conference in the early 90s, telling a traditional portfolio manager that I could clone her portfolio and it would do better than her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she really enjoyed that, Jeb. I can't imagine how you could have not been friends
1: after that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So it did change kind of in my mid-30s when I realized I was reading a review of the first edition of What Works on Wall Street that was like, this guy sucks. He's an idiot. He doesn't know, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm reading it. And rather than get angry, I just started to laugh. Hmm. I'm just like, this is like really funny. This person is so clueless that they, they just like don't understand what I'm trying to get at here. And so I thought about that a lot. And when I was a younger guy, like a teenager, I had a temper problem. I was a classic Irish fella. And I just realized through a series of things that happened that I couldn't be like that. And so I really worked at, you know, I'd started reading Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching. I I read the Stoics. I read a a lot of that and I got a lot out of it. And it was kind of like, yeah, I'm I'm doing this wrong.
2: Hmm.
1: It has served me so incredibly well in my life because there's just so, back to the quote I gave you at the beginning, whoever angers you controls you. And one of my big things is, I'm not surrendering my agency to anyone, and both good and bad, by the way, right? So if I fuck up, I fucked up. I'm not going to say, oh, it was you know because of that dirty, rotten guy, Johnson, remember uh, Forrest Gump? Yeah. Where you see people, whenever there's success, oh, I did that. Whenever there's failure, oh, that was that bastard Johnson, right? So that's surrendering agency. And when you do that, you lose your power, I think. And for good and bad, you've got to retain your agency. You've got to own your decisions. And when you do that, just really great things happen because you realize that back to failures, I view them as like really what a great opportunity I just got to learn yeah. something. And I'm also really big on unlearning things, right? So, and I changed my mind about things. Not like, I I don't have a list. I need to change my mind about this, but organically. So we talk about the great reshuffle. I'm now in favor of universal basic income, even though I know all of the empirical results that I've seen say it doesn't work so well. We had to try something. And I think that I'm willing to throw in with trying that. And by the way, if you study it, it's not a conservative or a liberal position. It's been advocated by both groups. And I think Milton Friedman, you know, Mr. Two Cheers for Capitalism, was a big advocate. And I like the way he, he framed it. It was like, you have the good fortune of being in the United States and being a citizen of the United States. Uh, you should get some of the benefits of that. And he kind of phrased it like, we should make them shareholders, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I actually had an interesting conversation. I'm, I might even mess up the, the term. I should let the person that has the idea come out with it. But something like superannuation or something where you're basically, you know, giving people equity, but forcing them to lock up their savings for a while, you know, with, with what you're giving them. You're not forcing them to do anything with what they earn. But I like that idea. I like the idea of giving equity to all the citizens because, I don't know, I worry about this wealth gap.
1: As do I. And and I think that that's a neat solution from the way I look at things because it also creates an owner mentality. And yeah. if, if you've got an owner mentality, you think differently than if you don't. My worry is I'm not a political person. I'm typified by one thing, which is I'm fiercely anti-authoritarian. I'm fiercely in, in favor of freedom of speech, even speech that I might find abhorrent and the rule of law. It's worked really well for our country. You don't have to study history endlessly to see when that those things aren't in place, things go to shit. But I think we've got a horrible class worldwide of politicians. Yeah, it's And bad. I worry actually that as part of this great reshuffle, we are so far ahead of them in the private sector. I mean, just look at medicine, right? Why do you have to fill a paper form out, the same one, 10 different times with the same doctor when you go to visit? It's crazy. It's insane. We have the technology that could be HIPAA compliant and work, but the problem that I'm seeing with our political class is that they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. And when you've got an environment where super bright people have access to these unbelievable tools and know how to use them I mean it's almost an unfair fight and yeah. so I worry I worry about our government like just getting so far behind the curve that they're married to 1930s solutions for healthcare or social welfare or whatever and back to the making everyone a citizen right so I had Chris Arnady, the author of Dignity on Infinite Loops, really, really interesting insights because most of the people, there are all these programs, right, that the people he interviewed who were indigent or done on their luck could avail themselves of, but they didn't. And why didn't they? Well, because they're human beings who have dignity and they didn't want to go in and be bitched at and lectured to by some school mom, Karen, who was going to tell them how they were gonna live their lives. And that's my worry about guaranteed basic income. If it takes the power out of the hands of politicians, I don't see it ever actually getting passed. Because yeah. if, if I was gonna do it, I would put them on credit cards and distribute them to everyone we've got an address for and, and have them on hand at centers for people who are homeless. And then they get to make their mind up what that money gets spent on. Politicians, taking their power away from them? Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah,
0: they're never going to be in, in favor of that. That's not why they ran.
1: But, but, so one thing that we could do that I would be interested in participating in, why don't we put together a consortium of like really switched on people who've got some money and try pilot programs where we give the money and we make it these cards. And, you know, listen, I love the United States of America. I am long U.S. I will always be long the U.S. It has been incredibly good for me and my family. And so I, I don't know. Let's pay it forward and experiment because this could be totally wrong. Right? Yeah, I could at get least you totally And there could be a great scam. And, you know, I'm sure that the really clever scam folks would like figure out a way to get a hundred of the cards. But, 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 you know, I'm not going to have
0: some bad outcomes, right? It's not a reason not to try.
1: No, exactly. Exactly right. And, and it's like people get caught up in this. They overthink things and well, well, that can't possibly work because, well, I'm a rational optimist, which means that of course there are going to be future failures. That's a given. It's a given. Yeah, you, you know what anyway. I find
0: interesting Jim when like I've noticed this a couple times people will propose a thought and somebody will jump in with like of course that won't work and it, and it's kind of like well the thought isn't necessary it, it doesn't have to be full or foolproof or whatever in order to to pursue like I'm not saying this is the only potential path I'm just saying right. maybe we start down this path and then we sort of divert to another one right I mean Imagine when you were young, if you had said, I'm going to write a book and then I'm going to kind of rabble rouse in conferences a little bit. I'm going to get the attention of CNBC and then I'm going to have a firm, right? Uh, Most people I think would be like, oh, you can't do that. It's like, well, try.
1: You know, it's really funny. I experienced that in real time with a friend here in Greenwich. He's like, when I first met him, my first firm, O'Shaughnessy Capital Management was really hitting its stride. And he's like, we were at dinner together. And he's like, you did this without any backers. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you didn't have any of the banks giving you money? And I'm like,
0: no. <laughs> You're telling me you bootstrapped this?
1: Yeah. And, and he's like, he's like, that's not possible. And I'm like, Michael, it is possible. <laughs> I, I did it. And so I think, again, that that gets back to kind of like, are you a open-minded, expansive, Thinker, or are you kind of a, a zero sum type person? And you know, pessimism is very seductive. It's very seductive because it appears to be more sophisticated than optimism, right? Yeah. And it's not. Literally, the book that I recommend to everybody, "The Beginning of Infinity" by David Deutsch. It's just brilliant around this stuff, and it's like one of the biggest traps that we fall into is. We presume to know that we are going to know what future knowledge is. Hmm. We don't. It's like one of his great quotes is, what do you think that physicists were saying about nuclear power or computer people about the internet in 1900? And his answer is, they were saying nothing. Yeah, they had no idea. No, they had no idea that this was going to happen. So, but it's a trap. It's a trap thinking trap, a logic trap that is so easy to fall into. And it's like, whenever I hear people say, the science is settled, I know they're trying to sell me something.
0: Yeah, for now, maybe.
1: Science is never settled. Yeah. I'm stealing this from Ryan North, but he said, if the scientific method had an ethos, it would be pure punk rock anarchy. It's like, take nobody's word for it. Yeah. Nullius in verba, which is the motto of the scientific society Isaac Newton was a member of, take no one's word from it and be gleeful about being wrong. Yeah, Because what happens is that's how you learn and get better explanations. Pessimism, though, is just, it seems to be a natural default. Again, I think we're getting back to evolution and- and Jim, I'll
0: tell you what's really intoxicating is certain pessimism. Right. If Ah. you can find somebody that knows what they're saying and they're pessimistic, boy, that's intoxicating. Uh, That'll drive ratings like crazy.
1: Yes, it will. Because, you know, we look, we're primed to pay attention to novel problems. And by that, I mean novel things that can kill us. And we forget that, like, we're domesticated primates and we are animals. Yes, we have this incredible higher function thank God, brain. And we're walking around with these quantum computers in our head, yet we also have the DNA of primates. And you just have to kind of accept that and work with your limitations and and then kind of see where that takes you.
0: So can I circle back to your early career for a little bit? Sure. When you were young and you had the book and you were going to conferences and kind of stirring up you know, telling somebody I can just build your portfolio and do it better than you. Did you understand like the mental game that you were playing in that scenario? Or was it just kind of like, I'm going to get attention somehow? Or did you believe it? Like, and I, I don't know that they have to be mutually exclusive. There's almost certainly some overlap. But in order to burst on the scene, sort of like I perceive you did, and then keep the momentum. I mean, were you studying these mental things as a young man, or is this an interest that you develop later on in life?
1: Yeah, no, I was studying them as a young man and learning successful ways to get to what your desired outcome was. And I knew that to break through back then in the 90s when most people didn't know what a factor was. I would have to say some pretty aggressive things. Now, I wouldn't have been as aggressive as I had been if I hadn't also gotten a gig as a consultant, oddly enough, to a big pension plan in the Twin Cities, an old company called Control Data, which was a conglomerate. And those are fun to read about because of how they developed anyway. I got hired because I was on the board of the St. Paul Chamber music orchestra and one of my colleagues there was the general counsel for control data. (laughs) We were at lunch and he's like, What are you working on? And I told I told him, I'm developing a system that I think is gonna be able to clone money managers and see basically how much value they as individuals in their buy-sell decisions are making. And he goes, Are are you could we hire you? And I'm hmm. like, yeah, sure. And he goes, because as part of all of this consolidation, we've got like eight different managers from four different plans. And you know, back in those days, Bill, it was like people honestly didn't know whether someone was a small cap manager, or a value manager, right? The relationships were everything. It wasn't. It wasn't ah, the style.
0: So you got to peek into what was
1: going. I on. got to peek in. And so hmm. what i what I did was, for several years, I would get all of the portfolios from the managers. I would put them on a data set. at that time I was using value line. I would look for the most significant deviations from their portfolio in terms of factors from the universe. And then I would use the most significant deviations to build a stock selection model. Hmm. And what we found also kind of underlined my Moving into full quant, was even though we attributed, by the way, these were called at the time normal portfolios because it was a portfolio whose, think of it as an X ray. So if it was an X ray, your version of it was a very similar X ray, right? Okay. And so it's not like, you know, you might differ a lot from the SP 500 or the Russell. 3000. This was you differing from your underlying factors, right? And yeah. they were the same, so they called it a normal portfolio in the literature. They didn't really catch on anyway, even though we attributed massive trading costs to the normal portfolios. What emerged was quite illuminating my clone portfolios killed the underlying manager, hmm. and and we had long discussions about why that was happening and what we concluded was they were making bad trading choices and that's led me into wonder why start looking at when they were trading things and lo and behold they were trading things on bad news hmm. they were selling after the bad news just not good heuristics to be doing stuff on so I wouldn't have gone out and and kind of made that claim if I didn't have some... I'm, I'm a big evidence guy, right? I, I want some evidence to back up a claim that I'm going to make because anybody can say anything about anything, right? And if you do that absent evidence, you're just a bullshitter like everyone else. So because I had that data, I felt very confident in saying that. And this was at a conference that was oriented towards retail investors this was pensions fund stuff. This wasn't retail at all. But I knew that if I could make some provocative claims and back them up, that people would listen to at least Hmm. my idea. And it's kind of like, do you want to play in the game or not? And if you want to play in the game, you got to put yourself out there. and You got to take risks and you got to be willing to have a lot of people like really angry at you, but it got a conversation going and I wasn't completely right about everything. Of course, no one ever is. So I did that in a thought out manner Hmm. because if you don't come up with a plan to convey your thoughts and ideas in a manner that people are willing to consider them, you can be the smartest guy in the room. I mean, I can't tell you the number of, Times like I've come across—I mean, geniuses, geniuses—that built like really incredible algorithmic trading systems, and it's like, well, I'll hire, I'll hire you. But
2: yeah, I won't, right. ever,
1: I, I won't ever put you in the front room. Yeah, because you can't communicate. I, you, you have to be able to communicate your ideas, and. That's why I'm so big on that skill and helping people with it. It's why I believe in writing. It's why I believe in putting yourself out there because nobody's going to pay attention if you can't distinguish yourself. Wasn't that Bezos, the final line in Bezos thing, distinctiveness, right? But don't, it can't be false. That's the thing. It's like when I work with young people, it's just like, no, you, you don't have a brand. You're you. Be yeah. you. Be of use to people. And guess what? Be authentic. Be of use. You'll be fine.
0: I guess the only, uh, you know, when you're young, the risk is that you may not know exactly who you are. So, like, sometimes I've encouraged people to do to, like, be authentically them anonymously, right? Mm. Because if you kind of blow it, you can reinvent yourself, right? Yeah. Once you come out as your own handle or whatever on social media, like, that's it. It sticks. So be ready for it by the time that you do it is sometimes my advice.
1: Yeah. You know, that's practice. Listen, man, I wouldn't want to be a 27-year-old guy in this environment right now. I mean, it's brutal. It's brutal. And and if you're doing it under your own name, it's like I've reached a point in my life and my career where, and I don't mean this dismissively, but I really don't care what people think about me. If I was 27, I bet I'd care. Yeah, well, you got your
0: entire earning years ahead of you. You better care, right? Exactly, exactly,
1: exactly. That's right. And so, yeah, why? That's actually not a bad idea. Try it out, and then do it. I am also, though, I'm a big believer in doing things under your own name because that's all in, and you burn the ships. Yeah. It's well, always that's been why my...
0: sometimes sometimes people on Twitter that are anonymous, they're like, well, don't judge me by my handle or you, you like you can almost tell that they started an account to fight and it's yeah. and, and then they'll say, well, judge me on the ideas. And it's like you're not even standing behind your ideas, man. You just like popped up some <laughs> random account to test something. That's there's no skin in this game. You no. just some guy or I think it's more guys than than females that do it. But maybe that's not right.
1: Statistically I, no,
0: I think, speaking on Fintwit, I have a higher probability of being right saying it's a guy.
1: Yes, absolutely. And look, I think that I'm a big bull on Twitter and started to see that light in 2018. And I honestly believe that it, it is going to emerge as the Schnelling point, which is where people who know nothing about it, nothing go, <laughs> right? Because everyone else is there. And, well
0: something that was amazing, Jim, is I, you know, me and this guy, Elliot uh Turner, he's not some guy, he's an incredible person, but uh this guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's this a great guy.
2: guy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we um, you know, we had a call with uh Ned Siegel, who's the CFO, and and I sort of co hosted with Elliot, and we had like a truly legitimate distributed buy side call right on spaces. Yeah anyone could could get into that right i didn't even know what callbacks were until pretty recently i didn't know that the you know the buy side has a lot of these relationships until maybe a year and a half ago and now all of a sudden it's just right there in the open and it's like isn't that what twitter really should be At at its finest moments that's what it is
1: totally and i also think that twitter is going to emerge as a global intelligence network You need to curate. You need to be ruthless. I tend not to block people, but I'm like, if somebody I don't know comes in with some stupid comment, I usually leave that one alone. I never respond. But then if they come in again with another stupid comment, I mute them. Yeah. And because I I don't need to block them, you know, people will like, well, what if they're saying nasty things about you? And I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Who the hell (laughs) are they? It doesn't matter to me. You know, it doesn't matter to me. But if you curate right, man, it's powerful. I think that Twitter is a real-time resume, right? I have a BA in economics, and that BA in economics suggests competence, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't guarantee it. Whereas the way I see the world going is apps like Twitter are a real-time resume. Mm-hmm. That people like me can watch people, and I heard two people from Twitter: Jamie Catherwood, who you know, and and Vatsil, my new colleague at Infinite Loops, and like literally, I would never have seen either one of these people, yeah, without without Twitter. And I got to watch them work, and I watched the quality of their work. Yeah, and, well, and Jesse and,
0: Livermore ended up at O'Sam, right? That guy's wicked smart.
1: Wicked smart. And we had uh, Lily, uh, yeah, nope, Lily. Yeah. no It's Lily. Yeah. Nope. It's Lily. That was a I great had...
0: episode, Jim. I'd listen to that like uh, either yesterday or two days ago. That was a great episode.
1: So uh, the thing that's great about that is like, I would never, ever in the pre Twitter, pre internet world, I would never know about her ever. Yeah. And that's what I love about Twitter I love these young intelligence, man. I, I just think it should be celebrated and we should amplify it and we should like do everything we can to show that we've got this uh, an amazing group of young people. And it doesn't have to be just young people, but an amazing group of young people who are doing really good work. And now we get to know about it, right? Yeah. I just find that very exciting, like Batsell. I mean he lives in a tiny little town outside Bangalore India. Hmm. The the fact is geography doesn't matter anymore. So we've been working together this guy is a learning machine. He's a we do this, do this, do this, coming up with great ideas for everything. And now all of those guys who are were in the past kind of prisoners of geography in a way. Yeah. Doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, well, and anymore.
0: it's arguably almost a benefit because, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm considering whether or not I need help, and I know that I can't afford a lot of people in the U.S.
1: Right. So, well, and, and that's one of my little worries is that some of the younger folks in the U.S., they better keep their ear to the ground because yeah. they're going to hear a thundering horde coming towards yeah, them. Yeah, that's right. And, and these people are enormously talented. And, 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 hungry. They work, and hungry and work their asses off. Look, I view it as a good thing. It's like if a billion people can suddenly get rewarding and interesting jobs that they're really good at, God bless, man. I mean, if we can make the world emerge from poverty, as by the way, it has been, you know, it's like, wouldn't it be great if there was just like one station that was just said, hey, guess what? In the last 10 years, 190,000 people who would have died of dysentery didn't Yeah, because of X, Y, or Z. And it's back to that human programming and, and default to pessimism. And I just think, look, I'm not, I'm not Panglossian. There's a lot of bad shit going on in the world. But I think this new world that's emerging is super exciting. It's giving tools to people who know how to use them, and giving them leverage, not financial leverage, yeah giving them leverage to do things that just were undoable, like 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. Uh, I love it. Maybe even three years ago at this point.
1: Right. I love it.
0: You know what I like about how we run each other's podcasts is I did not expect to have this conversation at all, but we're just going to go with it and see where it goes. And that's the same thing that happens when I'm on yours.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I designed mine quite specifically, as you know. It was like I want mine to be—it's so self-indulgent, really. But it's me literally talking to people that I find interesting. Yeah. And and my audience can self-select. I I don't promote it. I, I do on Twitter, obviously, but it's not like we don't take ads. I'm not interested in that. I'm not trying to run it like a business. I intentionally don't look at metrics because I'm a competitive person and what gets measured gets managed. And it would upset me if like, I don't know, Trent Griffith, right? So I love Trent. Yeah. If that episode really,
0: didn't go well or something.
1: Yeah. If yeah. that didn't go well and they're like, don't have this guy on, I don't like this guy. I'm like, fuck you. I don't care if you like that guy or not. I yeah. do. Yeah,
0: and Trent think- seems like a
1: cool dude. He is. He's a really cool dude. Yeah. And he actually, he taught me a lot of stuff. And one of the things that he taught me was a thing that I never thought about and I never framed it this way. And as you know, I'm a huge fan of the way you perceive things it is almost entirely on how it's framed to you. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that I learned from Trent was that it takes courage to put yourself out there. I had never like thought about things like that right and it was maybe just kind of like I was lucky and I just was naturally that way but the more I thought about it the more I thought you know what he's right it's like to publish a book or to have a podcast like you have or whatever to take a a position on some issue that might cause a lot of blowback to be public and take that position takes courage. And so I started working that in when I work with other people, and it resonates with them. They're like c- – because they're kind of like me. They're kind of like, I never thought about it that way.
0: Yeah, I uh, – part of what we talked about in April, right, was I – I mean, I wasn't used to anybody paying attention to what I had to say, right? Like in 2019, (laughs) nobody knew who the hell I was. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, people want to listen or people want me, you know, want to like have my time or whatever. And right. I, I mean, I didn't even know how to deal with that. And then I read, I mean, I. There's a couple reviews that sting a little bit, but, but somebody was like, this is so self-indulgent like, who talks about their influence growing? I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just like thinking out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not for everybody, but <laughs> I'm just trying
1: to be honest here. <laughs> I, I, so I, we talked earlier about like when I had this changeover on uh, kind of my mid thirties, I don't read reviews of anything I do. Honestly, I don't care because like, and that sounds kind of like an assholish thing to say because maybe I should because there might be some good input in there for me to think about, but I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'll just be honest. Yeah, and it's like people will get me on the phone, right? They're like, "Jim, you realize where you are with Infinite Loops, right?" And I'm like, "No, actually, I I don't, and I don't want to know." And they're like, "But you," and then they start, right? And there's. Obviously they're trying to sell me something, right? Yeah. So we can we can supercharge you and we can, you know, and I'm like, I'm not interested. Yeah. And it's so interesting for me because these people are like they get so flamoxed. And it's like
0: what do you mean I can't sell you something?
1: What do you mean I can't sell you something? And it's like parts of Twitter that I just love to pay attention to. There's this whole thing called money Twitter. You know, it's all the people selling shit, right? Hmm. You know, you too can be fill-in-the-blank, Yeah, right? It's like Tony Robbins, except they're all little Tony Robbins.
0: Yeah. And- I like Tony, but Tony repackaged a bunch of work and just sold it well. But he kind of admits as much, so that's why I don't mind him.
1: right. See, the problem I have with all that, and look, it, it can be really helpful for certain people, but the problem with external motivation- it dissipates yeah. really quickly. Yeah, that's true. That's why I like doing things in threads and actually like requiring, well, you did it, like actually requiring people to put some effort in. Yeah. Because because the only one, the only person that can change you, Bill, is you, Bill. That's it. Yeah. And can I be helpful? Hopefully, maybe. If what I say or suggest resonates, maybe, maybe I can't. So it's like, I, I have no urge to change other people. I want to help them. And that's why I do all, like, I had a good friend, like, why are you bothering, man? I mean, why aren't you just like in the Caribbean? Yeah, well, because you like <laughs> and, it. I like it. I love it. It's like, I've always, it's it's, it's always been one of my underlying things that I, I think playing fields should be level. And if I can level a playing field, that makes me feel good. Dude, I'll tell
0: you something that was really cool of you is when you opened up, I think it was your opener, was with Liz, right? Yeah. That was awesome. And like, nope, it's Lily and you put me on. I mean, I think it's really cool how you're trying to find young talent on Twitter and give them a shot. I think that's awesome.
1: I well, hope thank I'm doing you. stuff
0: like that when I'm a little bit older because I think that like that would give me a sense... It- I'm talking about me as if I'm you right here, right? But like that would give me a sense of fulfillment. And like, I'd want to get up and do that stuff. It's really, they're fascinating conversations you get to have.
1: Yeah. And you know, the way I look at it is, it's just like, if I can use my platform to introduce the world to really cool thinkers, sometimes unusual thinkers, sometimes people who don't fit into that box, right? I love that. I love that. Because it's just like we we are so lucky. We live in like the richest country in the world at the richest time in the world, and like I always tease people who are like capitalism sucks, and I and I, and, I, and and it's like I, I I always I always like put up it's a the thing best
0: thing that, we got.
1: Yeah, I always put up a thing like they tweet it from their iPhone while getting a Starbucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so here's a good question. I mean, how many jobs have you created in your career, do you think?
1: Wow. I've never even considered that. Hundreds, certainly. That's
0: amazing. Uh, And you built an enduring organization that you were able to give to your son, who is mad competent. Like, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, if I were so, you and somebody said capitalism
0: sucks, I'd be like, you go fucking do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd rather, I, it's more fun for me to tease them. I know, uh, but
0: I'm just yeah. saying, like, that's really, really cool. Like, yeah, were, well, thank you.
1: You know, I, I've been incredibly lucky in my life, and never a day goes by that I don't say thank you. It's like I won the cosmic lottery, and the odds against me are so astronomical that it's basically a null set and yet here I am yeah and so it's kind of like all of us honestly all of us are the result of millions of years of success of your ancestors mating producing offspring living and they doing it and so on and so on and so on until we get to us so I mean that's not a trivial thing man the yeah. the odds against existence are so huge and and so my whole thing is it's like i read a lot of like seeker stuff i hesitate to call it spiritual because it's really not it's not spiritual but like i just have this overwhelming desire to know about everything and one of the things that i find really interesting is just this idea that the joy you should have of being alive and being alive now, right? It's like every time I take a shower, I like say thank you because I contemplate the idea that for 99% of human beings who've ever lived on this planet, they never had a hot shower.
0: Yeah. And Yeah. It's not when you start and, thinking about how lucky just day-to-day life is.
1: Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. And so it's like back to the seeker stuff. It's like, so I'm not religious. I'm, I'm not an atheist because I think that requires as much faith as Yeah, being it does kind of dev- in a different way. Devout, right? Yeah. Well, because it's saying what you're saying is I know there is no God. Really? Oh, cool. You can you give me some proof for that? Or yeah. is there any hypothesis that makes it falsifiable?
0: No. Yeah. Have you talked and to Brent sure. So,
1: because he's got a
0: pretty yeah. compelling
2: document.
1: Yeah. So Brent's great. Exactly. But so for me, I'm an agnostic. I, I have an open mind about the way the world works, the way the universe works. I think it's a lot weirder than everyone thinks it is. Yeah. But, but so a lot of people who do this get to this place, and I call it, they reach the bridge of nihilism. Because- They go through all of the sanctioned belief systems like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you you fill in the blank Hindu, and they find them wanting. And what drives them crazy is life has no purpose, right? There is no, I mean, there's no answer, right? That the purpose of life is, you know, this. And, and, and so they, I see a lot of people get very nihilistic about it. And like, I go the other way, man. I say, okay, so if life has no meaning, what does that mean? It means that I get to create the meaning in my life. In other words, I get to choose my own adventure. Yeah. And, and I get to make the meaning in my life. Again, framing. Framing is so important. If you frame it that way, all of a sudden you're like, I mean, why wouldn't you just be like waking up almost every day thinking, God damn, what another great day.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, it's a life philosophy that took me a while to get to, you know, because I was like when I was in my early 20s, I was, you know, more Nietzsche than Nietzsche. <laughs> how, did like,
0: kids, how did having kids change you? So. I assume it did. I, I don't know anyone that it hasn't changed, which is why I asked so, that way.
1: Uh, of course it did i was the i'm the youngest in my family by 9 years and so from a young age i was changing my nephews and nieces hmm. so i was surrounded by little kids and i always knew that i wanted kids and so i got married today's my anniversary for example oh 30, happy anniversary uh, th- thank you 39 years we got married when we were 22 and we were kind of like, all right, we're insane to get married so young. Let's have children young. Mm. And <laughs> when we were talking about it, I, I said to my wife, you know, I want to like the same music as my first child, which is Patrick. And so I was 24 when Patrick was born. So how did it change? That's me? crazy, uh, man.
0: Yeah. So, so and, you're, and, you're and, trying to and, start a firm and you have Patrick. And oh, then my Kate, goodness.
1: And then Leo I will remember I got hired by Merrill Lynch as the first outside consultant to design a unit investment trust, which most people won't know what that is. It's a fixed portfolio that expires after a year, but they'd never hired an outside company before and company meaning me, (laughs) Yeah. but I, I still remember my wife was in labor in Greenwich Hospital. And I'm on a payphone doing a conference call for Merrill Lynch.
2: Oh, she must and, have loved uh, that.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I uh, she really was Does it really still happy come up?
2: It, okay, <laughs> it okay, might come up tonight.
1: Okay, 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 <laughs> occasionally. Occasionally. But but so I guess the first thing that I like really learned, like moments after and I was present when Patrick was born, because that was a trend that was getting started and I wanted to take full advantage of. Anyway, so I cut his cord. I took him in my arms and I understood immediately what unconditional love was.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and that was like, like really kind of blew me back because it was, I was lucky in that my mother loved me unconditionally and and i always say if you got one parent that you get unconditional love from you're probably going to be okay yeah so i was able i had been thinking about it but when that feeling speaking of emotions right when that feeling hits you and you actually feel it it's like and i remember when patrick got married And uh, Lauren, his wife, was pregnant with my grandson, Pierce. I said, Patrick, remember what I told you? You, when your child is born, we didn't know that it was a boy at the time. When your child is born, you will know how much I love you.
0: Yeah. That's what my dad said to me. And I think when I held my first,
1: I think I got what he said. You really do, man. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, again, it's just baked into our DNA. You know, Stephen Pinker does it. there's a great book called The Blank Slate, in which he talks about, you know, one of the, one of the first things that organized religions try to do is separate children from their parents. Huh. And the reason they do that is because they know that those the what's bred in the bone, the blood, wills out over everything. Hmm. And and so if they want to shape and mold the child, they want that child not to not to be under the purview of the parent. Hmm. And and so you understand kind of why when you have your own kids. And I I've never let's put it this way too. I've talked about this with a lot of people. I've never had someone say to me that they didn't immediately have that feeling.
0: Yeah. That I remember when my kid opened his eyes, it was like my entire world changed. I I oh. can feel it right now. Just even talking about it. I was sitting in the chair and I was looking down at him, his little eyes open. I was like, all right, that's it. This kid has me.
1: <laughs> totally. Totally.
0: And you know, I mean, the continuing to love unconditionally is difficult.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: And I can't imagine uh, it gets easier. <laughs>
1: So it doesn't. So I would recommend one of these seekers called Anthony DeMello, who's a—he's dead now, unfortunately. He was an Indian who was a Jesuit priest, kind of weird combination. But he essentially gained enlightenment from a rickshaw driver in uh, Calcutta, which hmm. itself is a really interesting story. But one of the things you learn when you read him is that one of the central things you've got to do is shed attachments. And the one that I had the biggest struggle with was DeMello basically saying, somebody asked him, do you mean family too? And he goes, yeah, I do. Hmm. And, And I was offended when I first read that. But then when I read his explanation, I understood better what he meant. He's not telling you to say, yeah, I'm not dealing with you anymore, family. It's in fact quite the opposite. What he's telling you is if you're making anything in your relationship with your wife or your husband or your child conditional, Hmm. that's bad. It's bad for you and it's bad for them. And so he's got this wonderful thing. I actually put it up on Twitter because I thought it was like really awesome. And I wrote it to my wife because I believe it. And that is, I love you, but that means that I have to let you pursue what you want to do in your life. That means I have to let you have your interests and they may not be the same as mine. Yeah. And it got me thinking about the whole kind of, conditionality, the quid pro quos, right? And, and fine, in arm's length negotiations or business partnerships or things like that, fine, right? I mean, like you don't want to keep doing business with somebody who's not doing their part of the deal. Yeah. But in matters of love and matters of the heart, this idea of being able to shed those, what I now understand are bad attachments, I think is critical. And, you know, it's interesting because I have kind of had that idea all my life. Like I had a recurring dream uh, that started. And I, of course, me being a lunatic, I keep a dream journal um, Hmm. that goes all the way back to when I was 19. And anyway, right about when Patrick was about to be born, I started having this dream about being on a beautiful boat, a yacht. And and we were sitting on the back of it and we were kind of just cruising around. And there was a woman who apparently I knew in the dream, <laughs> but in, in, the, in between us was this vase that I had that was quite beautiful. And it was in glass case, you know, really locked down and everything. And she just kept going on about this vase, right? She was like, I love this face. This face is so incredible. This is the most beautiful face I've ever seen in my life. And in the dream, I look at her and I go, "Take it. It's yours." And she's like, "I I I could never do that. I that's too much." And I'm like, "Well, y- you seem to love it much more than I do." Hmm. Um, and why, don't, why don't why don't you have it then? And she's like, "No, I I will not take it." I said, "Are you sure?" And she's like, "Yeah, I'm positive." I said, "There's nothing I can do to convince you to take that vase." And she's like, "No, there's nothing you can do." So I take the glass off of it, I crack the vase on the back of the boat and throw it in the ocean. Huh? And so And this is a recurring a of, dream that you had? Yeah,
0: that's interesting
1: and And so when you think about it, it's interesting, right? It's like... Things are just things, right? Yeah, the, the where were
0: you in your career at this? Just to, I'm just trying to frame like what I, maybe I, was going on in your mind, like what are you okay smashing? What does the vase represent?
1: Yeah. So in my career, I was still in the deep research part. Okay. Of doing everything that ultimately became my first and second book. And I am naturally an extrovert, but I have no problem being alone for long periods of time, and I I had a little small office that was about a half a mile walk from my house, and I went there every day early, and I stayed you know until dinner time, and I was completely alone. And I love classical music. I love Bach in particular, so I would just like stick on Bach and work all day long work. and study. Yeah. yeah. So who knows.
0: My recurring dream is my teeth fall out. It's not quite as deep as smashing a vase. <laughs> when I wake up and I'm like, oh, thank God I have teeth.
1: You know what? Happens that's all the time.
0: Common, I hate that, it. That,
1: that is a very common dream.
0: Oh, you do it drives know that, me right? insane. Yes. I can like, feel them disintegrate in the middle of the night.
1: I'm like, fuck, this again. I love it. <laughs>
0: So, what are you building in Infinite Loops that you need, uh, like analysts and whatnot? What's going on in the mind of Jim O'Shaughnessy?
1: So, Infinite Loops ultimately, I hope, will become the place where people meet super interesting people that they might never have heard of. Uh, you know, I'm going to continue to have people who are well known on as well, like Rory Sutherland and, and, and guys like that. Like Tim Urban, Wait But Why. Yeah, that was you know, a great my, episode. He's a smart dude. And we're doing a live event. Listen, I like talking to the smart people and hearing what they have to say because I find them fascinating. And then Alex Danko, who's my recurring guest, I think he's a hoot man. And like, I just love talking to him. And as you know, everything is unscripted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't even tell people what we're going to talk about, literally. And so I want, what I'd really love is for people to self-select who want to listen to that kind of stuff. And I want them to feel like they got to pull up a chair at the dinner table where me and my guests are talking about stuff. Yeah. And then we're going to do, we're going to start to do some series. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we're, we're planning one right now on this whole great reshuffle and and what we think is going to happen. So that's going to be fun. We might expand into YouTube video land against my desires and wishes. Uh,
0: I'm very conflicted on this myself. Yeah. I'm inclined not to show this video. I kind of like the audio only product.
1: Yeah. Listen, so do I. But again, I'm a data guy at the end of the day. Yeah. And so I did a deep dive and man, YouTube has like just massive fans. Yes, they it does. just love everything YouTube. They love to see people's expressions and and I get that. That's not my way.
0: You want to know my um, real reason I don't want to do it, Jim? Why? Cuz there are some episodes that some people have said like I'd like to come on but I may need drinks. Right or something like that, and I don't want the audio only version to be like, a, "Oh, this person was drinking." You know, I want it to be random enough that That's people great. are allowed to do whatever the hell they want on here, but not so, like you know, take career risk.
1: Right. Well, you're thoughtful. You know, the first one I ever did, I did with Ramp. Right. Yeah. And and we did it in in person. and yeah, we Dan
0: was there, it, wasn't Dan there?
1: Yes, because Dan. Yeah, you guys were Dan- taking
0: tequila shots.
1: No, 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 no. Ramp was taking tequila okay. shots. Okay. We were all we were all on the clock. It was a it was a work day for us. Okay. Ramp was on vacation. Ah. And we become really good friends since then. But this was my first meeting of him. He turns up late, and it was at a really nice club in Manhattan. And so we had this really cool room and everything. And <laughs> he's what, ripping hey, shots. He's ripping <laughs> shots. And it's like, and it's like. Of course I'm going to let him do that. Yeah. And so the the waitress comes in and I'm like, "Yeah, see this guy over here, this lanky tall guy? Yeah, bring him four double tequilas and oh, put nice. them all in front of him." <laughs> and so it was so funny because like literally he was drunk. <laughs> oh yeah. And 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 he, the the fun of it, of course, was he got funnier. He got a lot funnier. Yeah. And, and what people don't know about Ramp is he's a very smart guy. And Well, yeah, and you can't he's... build
0: that and not be smart. It's
1: impossible. Yeah, no, you can't. Well, I also have the thing. If somebody is incredibly funny, they have to be smart. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because really good humor requires your ability to see the incongruities of a situation. And also to bring those kinds of things up. Let's put it this way: I know a lot of comics. My youngest daughter was a stand-up comic for a while, and I've never met an unsmart comic.
2: Hmm.
1: And I've met some really big names. I mean, I haven't met him, but like, just look at Chris Rock's eyes, and they dazzle. This guy is so smart. His eyes are just like on fire with intelligence. I,
0: and, I mean, the amount of times that I quote the stuff that he said, like like I, people ask me about how do you stay married, you know? And yeah. I, my mind automatically goes to him being like, you got to marry the crust of the motherfucker. Like you you <laughs> yeah. don't get to just eat the sandwich, the middle. Like you got to <laughs> like the crust. That's <laughs> so I'm true. like, that's it. That's it's actually so the right true. stuff.
1: And you, then, And then when he goes on and on about somebody bragging about getting a job, you're supposed to have a job
0: <laughs> yeah the, the first time I saw it, I think it was bring the pain the one where he was talking about OJ and stuff I oh. I had my so this is how that night went I lose a tennis match to my buddy Jimmy Gubitosi and we're staying at my grandma's house in Vermont I get in the car and I'm like super pissed off and my grandma farts And my grandfather, my grandfather looks at me and he's like, great. So on top of being a pleasure to be with, you go and fart. And I couldn't like out my grandma. My grandma and Jimmy and I are all laughing in the car because we know what actually happened. We go get ice cream and we're come back. We're still giggly. And then we turn that like Jimmy and I turn that on. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I came into it in sort of a happy mood anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, We cried the whole night laughing. Like, it was, that was the most amazing comedy I think I've ever seen. It's probably close to the first time people saw Eddie Murphy, right? Like, I I didn't even know what to expect.
1: So, I I had the opportunity to actually meet and have dinner with, after seeing his show, Martin Short. And this guy is like, I mean, he is just another example. This guy's mind is so fast. Yeah. And what he does better than a lot of people is he just lampoons the hypocrisy of the entertainers. Yeah. And and like he he's just like really really funny. And I love listen, I love funny people because I think that humor is a way to get some truths out there I guess that you couldn't like if you weren't funny. Yeah. And and so Is
0: this how you look at memes too, sir?
1: Oh yeah. So yes, it is. I do have ulterior. I
0: I never know when you give me a meme, I'm like, is Jim giving me approval or disapproval? There's certain (laughs) ones that I think can go either way. And then I sit there and I think for a little bit,
1: I'm like, I know he's
0: trying to tell me something, but I don't know what it is.
1: So I am fascinated by the uh, weapons grade nature of memes. And the mimetic behavior that they engender. I'm not giving anything away to say that more than half of what I do on Twitter is an experiment yeah. and I'm building a data set.
0: I just don't know what this data set is for, but one day when you take over the world, I'll be like, "Oh, well, he was hacking the neural network, of course." It's Osam so, part 2. Uh,
1: <laughs> so, so I am very interested in the fact that for the most part, people are very visual, but they also want to be entertained. And so, I run my Twitter account basically in thirds. So a third of my stuff is serious. In other words, it's like these threads that I do. And, and like, I I do the quotes, the two thoughts from quote every day, and I'll do other quotes as well. And threads. So that's kind of the, the serious part. I will, I enjoy having like conversations on the open timeline about interesting things. Like somebody was earlier today, it was like, you know, Did we discover math or did we invent math?
2: Hmm.
1: And and I find those kinds of things really interesting. And then the other part is entertain. But entertain and send a little bit of a message at the same time that you're doing that. The whole GIF and meme thing was me studying symbols, actually. I know this is a real letdown, but the power of symbols in human society. They are unbelievably powerful.
2: Yeah,
0: well, it's what politics has become, it seems like.
1: Yep. And so what even masks
0: became a symbol in a way.
1: Yeah. And and which is crazy to me. But anyway, it's like, it is what it is, and that means I'm going to study it. Yeah. The ulterior motive is that. So all of the kind Hang on of, wait I th- think I
0: just got an insight this might not be an insight to other people but do you think that part of why you're a factor investor and also interested in this is you enjoy the study of like group psychology?
1: Oh totally. Yeah. Yeah. I Absolutely. mean I guess
0: I knew that but the the two just like linked up in my head.
1: I am fascinated by human beings and by what what drives us and I think that if, if I build my mental models, which I hate using the term because it gets overused, but it's a good term. If I can continually improve by deletion and addition my mental models, that's good for me. And the truth ought to indicate that you're right about something. I am ruthless in terms of stripping away something that doesn't lead me to the right conclusion. Right. I've always want to learn about those and human interaction, mimetic desire, all these things that I'm really interested in began with my fascination with the stock market. Because, listen, uh, the stock market's the Olympics of business as far as I'm concerned. And it's like, you know, there's just so there's just so much going on. And to understand it and to to be able to build models that directionally are correct and do well over time, that's like really cool for me. And human psychology is really a massive part of that. But what I was going to say is I'm sure that there will be innovations in traditional factor research, right? But I think it's been really heavily mined. We're all using the same data set, which is the CRISP going back and the CompuStat going back to 64. We actually, for a while, were building a data set using old Moody's manuals that were being translated by a team in Africa, that we were going to actually be able to build factor models back to the early 20s. But we kind of stopped when we got some of the data, like price to book, for example, and yeah, it was a, it was exactly what we would have predicted. And the second thing is that it's not that I'm not interested in those financial models. I am, but they've been durable. In other words, for the most part, things make sense. Now, does that mean that you cannot evolve your model? Well, yeah, you better, like price to book. Price to book became less and less relevant as the economy moved more and more to brand value. You know, certain dyed-in-the-wool types stick with it, and we dropped it just because it's not working well anymore, And, and for reasons that we understand. Right.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's an old world sort of way to look at though. It's, it's yeah. great for
1: manufacturing businesses, I guess yeah, is how we i sort of we we're, we're not making real widgets anymore. We're making digital widgets. and But my point was going to be that we've gotten as much data, financial data, on stocks as I think anyone. We've tested our stuff in every market that for which we have data. And one of the things that we found is kind of like the the really unglamorous thing is you're going to get much better results if you are like draconian about cleaning the data. And that's very unglamorous. And yet it's what my guys do because it makes a huge difference. But what I'm looking at now is probably going to be Using different tools like hmm. machine learning, for example. Um, I have a thesis that I've had since I was 27. And now we can finally test it because machine learning is oh, going to be able cool. to test it. It's got to be pretty and exciting. It is exciting. I can hardly wait, man. It's yeah. going to be awesome. But it's like that original high that I got when doing the original What Works on Wall Street. It's like, I had to walk the data by hand because the program that they said worked (laughs) did not work. And so I did it all in Sanskrit or early computer language and literally did it year by year. And so for like three years in a row, I was the best error finder for CopyStat because it was all, I mean, when you see the errors, it's like, wow.
0: The other thing I did after our last conversation is I ordered a a notepad of grid paper so that Mm -hmm. I can write down by hand everything because of what you said. I was like, all right, I'm doing this by hand. I'm done. I'm done relying on Excel. It may sound silly, but I'm going to catch the errors and my mind's going to actually know what's going on.
1: And it works. It is so, it's amazing when you get into that and you really are doing it that laboriously The hard way, you learn so much and you just see all of the errors. And in in the fourth edition of What Works, it's like I included a long reference to the McQuarrie paper. A guy did this paper basically saying, Oh, yeah, you know, all that data that you think you've got the most comprehensive data set in the world. Yeah, it doesn't cover 50% of the stocks that we're trading Hmm. during that time period. So, my point being that will there be a continued evolution in you know the traditional quant approach to the market yeah probably will it get augmented by things like machine learning almost certainly but the things that i'm looking for in this new thing and this takes this is uh, takes a little while but so i've always defined the stock market as a complex adaptive system with feedback loops Okay. Mm-hmm. Under normal conditions, markets clear, right? In that opinions are heterogeneous. In other words, Bill might be buying Apple and Jim might be selling Apple, but we both have legitimate reasons for doing that. You're buying it for your three young kids, I'm selling mine because I want to pay for my grandson's education. Whatever. Yeah. But th- these are these are reasonable reasons to both buy and sell, and our opinions are different, and that's why markets work so well. However, there are anomalous times wh- that some have called black swans, that others have called glitches in, in the underlying system, whereby information cascades begin to happen. Hmm. and. When these information cascades happen, they move participants' opinions to homogeneity. In other words, everybody's thinking the same thing. Now these things happen under different duration regimes. They can be short, medium, or long-term, okay? And so I believe that the very definition of a black swan is something that you can't predict, right? But that does not preclude being able to confirm a black swan has occurred, big, small, medium, or large. Okay, so, you know, take when oil went to negative, right? Yeah. Um, That was a black swan. Um, You know, global financial crisis, black swan. And I believe that through an intensive, machine learning iteration that we're working on right now, we are probably going to be able to test this hypothesis. And the the hypothesis is black swans can be confirmed hmm. early. Hmm. And you don't have to be too bright to understand that if you have ooh, four months ahead uh, start on trading, either long or short, a black swan. Yeah, you should be, you, uh,
0: that's a nice edge. You,
1: that, that, that should be a nice little edge that you're going to have. Huh. So that's my hypothesis. It's been updated because I didn't know about machine learning in 1987 when I was talking about this. But the nature of complex adaptive systems, you have to understand, is that everything that is emergent from a complex adaptive system comes from the bottom not from the top. Right? Hmm. That's that's why Yeah, you
0: can't plan it as much. It's uh it just kind of exactly. happens.
1: Exactly. I just think that I have the right mental framework. So I had one of our other OSAM research partners, really nice guy who's a data a machine learning specialist, we recorded a podcast with him yesterday. And, like he was the first guy that I was like talking to about this. and And he's like, "It's really fascinating." And then I asked him a question. I'm like, "I have a theory that normal people, and I'm thinking of young Frankenstein and I have Abby Normal as my brain, Normal people rebel a little at AI or machine learning in that, even if it can tell you when and why, because it can't tell you how, mm. not, sorry, it can tell you when and how, it can't tell you why. Okay. Right? right? And, and we are such narrative-based creatures that I've noticed because I ask a lot of people about this. I'm like, hey, would you be cool if I could tell you that this was going to happen, it was going to happen for this amount of time, but I couldn't tell you why? And yeah, it wouldn't sit you. well
0: with most people. I don't know that that'd sit well with me, but I'll tell you what, if I could make money
1: on it, I'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I have no problem with that. Yeah. But I also go into this assuming that the null hypothesis will win. In other words, I'll be wrong, that, yeah. that you, you can't confirm uh, a black swan. But it's, this is the kind of research that I'm finding exciting right now, and it's a whole different way of looking at markets. Because, as you know, we've been doing a lot of venture through O'Shaughnessy Family Partners, which is our family office. We've been doing a lot of venture style investing. And Patrick O'Shaughnessy Asset Management owns Positive Sum, which is our venture capital division, but Patrick runs it. So, you know, he's the general partner. But we also think that this kind of way of looking at the way markets emerge and the way stuff emerges is going to be more useful on the machine learning AI side. And by the way, we don't think that any of it's magic. It's Kevin who I had on yesterday was like, he was the first guy who was, when he came up to Connecticut to do a day long seminar for us, which was awesome. And I, like the, he opened with the line, anything that you have heard from an AI marketer is wrong and it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he level set us really well. And then he gave us the real skinny on how it works and it's really cool
2: how it huh. works.
1: And it's only getting cooler, you know? We have the vaccine because AI we couldn't fold protein, piece of cake for them. And things like chess by just putting in the the rules of the game and not other games, they found that was the best thing to do. In other words, let the machine figure out how to play the game. Yeah. We are fortunate in that we have access to like some really wicked smart people being able to help design this. I kind of think that that's the next, I, you know, I'll keep most of my money, my public money in OSAM strategies, obviously, you know, I love our micro cap strategy. It was so funny. You know, people are always like, they think I'm bullshitting them. When I say that I don't look at my portfolio, I, I really don't look at my portfolio.
0: Yeah, well and, that's that's and, when you're really actually confident in it.
1: Yeah. And so but the the funny thing was, so somebody was was talking about microcap stocks, and we have a microcap strategy, which which I love and I put a lot of money in. And and so I don't know why it came up, but for the first time in like a year, I went and actually looked at how it had done. And it was up like 79% in a year. And I called Patrick and I'm like, did you know that this one and he goes, Of course I knew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dad. Go back to doing your podcast thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm watching yeah, like, everything. I, I got Thank it. you. I, well, and
1: you know, and, and that's the and the other fun thing that like I am all in on is our Canvas platform, customized portfolios. Like I tried it with Netfolio in the nineties and the tech wasn't there and I wasn't smart enough to like Get it just right, but I we built up all of the software because I was a software freak, and I and I just didn't want any off the shelf software. <laughs> and we rolled we rolled out of Bear Stearns in right into the great financial crisis, and and so like I said to the president of my company, Chris Lovelace, I'm like, dude, we're not going to sell a long only portfolio for three years. We know that. Let's not try and delude ourselves. And pretend that everyone's going to just snap back. And yeah. I said, so let's spend the next three years building, getting rid of every, I want to pull out every commercial off the shelf piece of software. Hmm. And I and I want it built for our separately managed accounts. So Patrick is looking at all this and he's enamored of AWS. And he comes into my office and he sits down and he goes, dad, yeah, we built the Death Star to kill a mouse. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, Our technology is like, you know, we go through these really deep due diligences by the big firms and and consultants that hire us. And I'm not going to name any names, but we have heard the comment from more than one of them. Your technology is like literally better than asset management shops, a hundred times your size. Hmm. And so Patrick gets the idea. Let's let's customize let's repurpose this tool and give advisors the power to give their clients exactly what they want and what does that mean well it means like if you work at google and you got a big slog of google stock we can do nearest neighbor analysis to the entire universe and not buy any stock whose factor profiles are really close to google uh, yeah, we can so also like tackle-
0: diversification for real
1: We we can also tax manage your position and generate between, depending on how the year goes, between fifty and one hundred and ten basis points of tax alpha. Hmm. If you want a real ESG, don't buy anything off the shelf, man, because there's a lot of crap in there. And like we have fifty four levers you can pull, and and so you can design it right down to you. And and I was rereading so Peter Drucker you know, the management guru. Mm-hmm. I've read, I read all of his books, but the book that he wrote that I liked the most was this book called Adventures of a Bystander.
2: And it was about his
1: life. And I highly recommend it. I think you'd love it because this guy just like got to meet like some of the most fascinating people in the world.
2: Yeah, that's and, cool.
1: And one of the stories is when he was working for a small merchant bank In London in the 1930s. And, you know, it's really funny. He's got a good sense of humor. But when he's talking about the way they actually managed money for these wealthy clients, I was like to Patrick, this is what Canvas can do for everybody. Hmm. I mean, it was designed for that particular client. And Hmm. now we can do that. And, like, in not even two years, We've added nearly $2 billion to that platform, new money. Wow. And the other thing that I think is really cool about it is it's also given us a way to put behavioral biases on the investor's side. Hmm. Now, how do we do that? Well, there's this thing called the IKEA effect, which is if you have anything to do with like the construction of your portfolio. And by that, I mean like, Maybe we, we had my friend Howard Lindzen, we, we did what we called the Howie 495 because he only wanted to remove five stocks from the S&P that he really hated. Anyway, even if that's all you do, people will stick to a portfolio yeah, a lot it's longer. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And, and, that makes sense. And, and so I, I'm wildly bullish on that. And I, I just think that's going to be the way money gets managed. If you're working with an advisor and, you know, it might even end up becoming a retail product too, just because again, the tech is there and why not? So that's cool. Yeah. A lot of cool, exciting stuff going on.
0: Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let you get out for your anniversary, but I do want to ask one question on behalf of Jen Ross.
1: Ah, Uh, Jen Ross.
0: I I said, do you have any questions for Jim? And she said, he's all about reversion to the mean with the market going straight up. What does he think that will look like when reversion happens? A sharp drop, a slow trickle. Is there any escape? She presupposes that there's a reversion coming in the question. So you can can assert something different than the assumption that she makes. But
1: that's her question. A natural short
0: seller's question.
1: Yes. Jen, <laughs> Jen, Jen is great. I love Jen. So yeah, there probably will be reversion to the mean and it will coincide with the Fed trying to normalize their policies. And the minute money costs something again, it would not surprise me in the least to see a lot of holy fuck yeah. I better start actually paying attention to companies that have real cash flows. Do I know when that'll happen? No, I don't. Yeah, nobody don't, does, I, right? I, I yeah, I don't I don't know how long the Fed will maintain this posture. They've kind of painted themselves into a corner. And so we'll see. At some point they're going to have to, right? Because uh, it, there's there's a reason why they call economics the dismal science. And when that happens, that'll be the catalyst, would be my guess. And, but to all the young people who are listening, buy, 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 buy man. Yeah. I mean, because if you get an opportunity to buy stocks 50% off and like you're 35 years old, I that's mean, that's how you get wealthy. That's how you get, exactly. That's how you yeah. get rich. Yeah. So the
0: unfortunate part of the policy at least as I see it and I have a pea brain so I could be wrong but it it further's a lot of the the problems in society that we have right and those that are wealthy don't have to you know they benefited off this bounce and you know forward returns are lower that only that doesn't really actually impact them that much but really kills the people that are trying to grow wealth so i would welcome a correction as long as uh i can avoid lifestyle creep you know uh,
1: just Finally, that's another one of my little hobby horses. It's like this whole idea that some people have that you're not allowed to speak on that because you're rich or you're this or you're that. What they don't understand is super huge tax increases aren't going to affect me. I mean, I'm set. I can retire if I want. And who they're going to fuck up are young people like you who want to make something of their life. And so their thinking is just so not clear. <laughs> they don't really understand that the people they're hurting the most are the young people who want to you know want to build some wealth for their family and want to succeed. They're not hurting me. They're not they're not hurting Bill Gates. They're not hurting <laughs> yeah. you know.
0: Yeah, Buffett's uh, going to be fine.
1: <laughs> Buffett's going to be just fine. Yeah, this urge to punish I just find so unevolved do you think
0: it stems a little bit from like not wanting to own whatever portion of your own situation is your own like it seems to me and I say this as somebody who has had every single benefit in the world so I get it but a lot of it's like a lack of ownership in in a lot of outcomes A, a lot of the anger that I see is kind of like well I'd like to know how much of that self-inflicted or community inflicted versus sort of who you're blaming.
1: Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know the answer. I, I do know that if you manage to retain your agency, you don't think like that. Yeah. Again, I am just stunned by the amount of bright, amazingly smart young people that I am able to interact with and and hopefully, you know. Amplify. There's so many, and it's like at some point you you got to understand that if you're always going to be blaming somebody else, you're, you're going to have a shitty life. And yeah. I don't I don't want anyone to have a shitty life. I want everyone to have a great life.
0: Well, I can tell that by the way that you're a mentor to the younger people, myself included, and I appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me. And more than when the mic's on, I appreciate you taking the time when the mic's off. And it's been a a relationship that I cherish. And uh, I've said it to you in private. I'll say it publicly. I I will try to use you as a role model when I have people that reach out to me to do the same for them that you've done for me. So thank you.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure. And you're a great guy, Bill. So I see that happening. High probability.
0: Well... (laughs) I I hope you're correct, and uh, maybe our pods can combine and we can do something cool together over time. We'll
1: rule them like angry gods.